When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving break. Mine was pretty good. Now, as everybody knows, the past couple of days, we've been welcome back to the market with about a 1% decline for two days now. So Monday and Tuesday, the stock market dropping, at least today, if I go over to the research tab here, 0.7% for the S&P 500. The Dow Jones is down 0.97%. The QQQ, which this is like the NASDAQ 100, it's a really tech-heavy index, it's down 0.79%. So everything is right there below, a little bit below a percent drop for the day. And then yesterday was about equally as bad. We dropped about a percent yesterday as well. If I look at my portfolio here and I go over to the one day, today it held up really well. My portfolio is down for the day 0.1%. So obviously my portfolio has a little bit of different elements that I think make it so that it's a little bit more diversified. doesn't follow the S&P 500 perfectly, but it just has a few different things that I'll mention here of why it only fell 0.1% instead of 0.7%. So 0.1% of my portfolio is $71. That's not a lot of money. That's, that's pretty just flat for the day. Now, if I scroll down here and I look at this, why did my portfolio not follow the S&P 500? The reason why is because telecom today did well, utilities did well, real estate and bonds did well. Pretty much everything that are your old, boring, dividend-paying companies, those are the ones that, that did pretty well. Telecom, utilities, and real estate, those are the ones that did really well. The S&P 500 does not have 20% of it in real estate or any of it in bonds, and I have 20% in bonds as well. So what this does is these are typically considered uncorrelated assets, meaning that real estate, sometimes it will trade with the S&P 500, meaning it will trade in the same direction. It will go up and down with the S&P 500, and other times it won't. Like today, it's not trading in the same direction. Mine is going up 0.34%, while finance and healthcare drop down quite a bit. So I look at that and I like having different sectors that trade differently. I don't like having everything completely correlated. That's why I put 20% into bonds, 20% into real estate, and 80% into dividend paying stocks. And that 80% is broken up into all different industries as well. All right, so a few things that I just want to touch on in this video is the first thing I want to go over is why I focus on dividends, why I focus on passive income. And it's a different because there's two different things that you can focus on. There's capital gains, there's dividends. A lot of people still are confused of why I continue to focus on dividends. So I'm going to be going over that first. Other things that I want to touch on in this video is my monthly passive income from last month, November, compared to the same month in 2018. So I'm going to show you how much my passive income has grown from 2018, where I started this portfolio at the beginning of 2018, to where we are right now. So it's been almost two complete years. I'm going to be going over that. And then the last thing, I put this on my community tab of my YouTube page. So this was a poll. You'll see these show up in your feed on YouTube if you're subscribed to the page. It says, all right, investors, I have to know, what is your opinion on the Tesla Cybertruck? Then I ask if it's ugly or cool or somewhere in between. And we had 3,600 votes. So that is a lot of votes. I'm going to be showing you the results of that poll and what I think of it. 
And then, of course, I have a lot of comments and questions, different emails and people messaging me that I'm going to be replying to as well at the end of the show. So I said that over the holidays, I'm going to have more time to be able to answer people's questions. And I plan to go through a number of them in this episode today. So stick around if you want to hear my input on a lot of various questions at the end of the show. Okay, so first of all, let's actually take a look at what's causing the market to go down this week. Here's a clip from President Trump. The China trade deal is dependent on one thing. Do I want to make it? I have no deadline, no. In some ways, I think it's better to wait till after the election. You want to know the truth? I think in some ways it's better to wait till after the election with China. But I'm not going to say that. I just think that. I just tell you. So there you have it. That's it. President Trump, you heard it from him himself saying that the the suggestion that the whole phase one deal that was going to be struck, you know, very soon or whatever, he's suggesting that that might be pushed until after the elections, that he's in no rush to complete a deal. He's under no pressure with the elections. He doesn't care to get it in before the elections. So he doesn't mind waiting out China. And that suggestion, of course, investors are hoping for this thing to resolve itself because this trade war is causing issues in manufacturing, particularly an entire sector of the economy is pretty much in a recession. It's in a decline. And the suggestion this will continue on for a long period of time is not good for the market. So if we look over the past five days, you can see this play out that the market, this is the S&P 500 I'm looking at right here. This is SPY, which tracks the S&P 500. So you can see from November 27th to current day, it's down 1.8%. But this whole thing, I got to say this trade war, the deal that's going on, this this deal, this deal that originally started off as we're going to get the entire deal. Now it's broken into phases. Now investors want to see phase one, whatever that even means. I don't even know what phase one is. I don't think anybody can articulate what phase one is of this trade deal. Um, I don't really care about any of this anymore. I've been hearing about this trade deal for the last year and a half, and it's just ongoing dictating the S&P 500 up and down over and over again, knocking SPY down three or four percent, and then it recovers, and then you hear good news, and, and Trump will make a tweet that will make the market go back up this Friday or whenever he has his positive tweet scheduled that trade talks are going really well, and then we'll get news like this that things are not working out, that China has a different opinion of how things are going, and it's going to carry on further on. To me personally, when I see how much the markets are affected by this type of news, by simple statements that President Trump makes that are changed a couple days later, he'll tweet something out. But the market takes billions of dollars and it flows in and out of the market solely based off of these different tweets. You can see that that happens, these different statements. Billions of dollars will be pulled out of the S&P 500. Billions of dollars will be put back into the S&P 500. This type of reaction, this type of news, and the behavior that I see is, I think, an abundantly clear example of why I do not focus on capital gains, of why I focus on the income the dividends, the interest, the passive income. The passive income is decided by the companies. That's actually decided by the performance of the companies. It's something that is internally decided. For instance, when I go to my portfolio and I look at the past week, I go to the gains here. This is my overall gains or losses. I have two different numbers that I can look at here. I go down and it's market gains and earned dividends. The market, which is subject to the whims of these investors that look at the news and their headline investors that every single thing that President Trump tweets or that China says or the latest thing that he says in one statement at the White House, 
Uh, they pull money in and out. They're totally unreliable. Uh, it's not based off really how companies' performance are doing or the fundamentals of any company, based totally on headlines. That is this number right here. That is the market gains. That is what you're basing this number off of. The earned dividends, the $53 that I earned in the past five days, that is something that is decided internally. So you have the market gains based on how much other people are willing to pay for something. That's something out of the company's control, out of your control. You can't control what other people are deciding to pay or how much money they're putting in or taking out of the market. The earned dividends is something decided internally. That is something where the company has their net revenue, the money that they're making, their expansion year over year. The CEO, along with the executives and board of directors, they get together and they decide how much money they can afford based off of their fundamentals of their company. They decide how much money they can afford to disperse to their shareholders. That is the dividend. So the dividend is something that the actual company, totally independent of every single external factor, they decide how much money they can pay you. That is what I look at. That is what I pay attention to. I think it is a much better weather vane of how your companies are actually performing than the market gains, which are based off of stuff like this. You know, Trump signals. He signaled something. So the markets responded by taking billions and billions of dollars out of the S&P 500 in a couple hours. So I say I focus on the dividends. This is the passive income right here, the earned dividends. That's income I'm gaining from my portfolio that I don't have to pay attention. But what does focusing on it means? Well, that means that I keep track of it here. If you haven't seen the spreadsheet, let me zoom in here a bit. Um, one of them is my favorite graph. This one is the actual monthly income. This actual monthly income graph started because when I started my portfolio, it's named passive income. That is an accurate name for this portfolio. It's a dividend growth portfolio. It's mixed in with bonds and some other things. So there's multiple strategies going on within the portfolio. But overall, the overriding goal is passive income. And when I started the portfolio, having that be the main goal, I took it very seriously. So this isn't some kind of gimmick. Quite literally, the whole goal of this portfolio and this whatever you want to call it, this whole series, the thing that I'm tracking, the thing that I'm showing other people is me trying to grow a stream of passive income. And just so people are aware, the definition of passive income that I'm using is income that I don't really have to clock in for. It's something that I put in a little setup, a little monitoring, but most of the work is done without me having any kind of intervention. So when I started this, like I've said many times on the channel, it started off with earning nothing for the first two months. If you start a portfolio like this, I know that there's a lot of people new over the past like 25 days, we've had over 10,000 new subscribers. So I know some people are joining in on the journey. They're starting different portfolios based off the same passive income. When you start off, it takes time to see those dividends start rolling in. Give it six weeks to around two months, and then you'll start to see dividends rolling in. You can see that happen here. January of 2018, zero. Didn't earn a single cent in interest or dividends. February of 2018, zero. It wasn't until March that I earned $8.76 and then so on and so forth. And I have funded this portfolio aggressively. So there's a couple things that you have to do to make this work. First of all, you have to start and set it up. The second thing is you have to fund it aggressively. If you're not continually adding money to this, it's not magic. It won't just start to drastically exponentially compound without you putting in a lot of effort. But you can see what happens when you do start to fund it and you continually add money to it. I can watch this portfolio grow over and over again. Last month, in the month of November, I earned $168.32 in dividends and interest. 
This is a little bit lower than the month prior. So in October, I earned $183.85. That is the high right now. But that follows the same pattern. So if I look at, this is October of 2019. That's the $183. If I look at October of 2018, it went down a little bit from October to November as well. So this is following the same pattern because companies that pay out every October, they're going to continue doing that year over year, right? They're going to keep the same payout schedule. So you'll see that the ups and downs of this graph be mirrored year to year. That's what's happening here. Now, what I will say is don't look at this at month to month. Look at this at year to year. $168.32 is what I earned in November of 2019. That was last month. $42.95 is what I earned in November of 2018. So I went from $42 in November 2018 to $168 in November of 2019. Now to give you an idea of the growth rate, 42.95, $42.95 to 168, that's my year over year change. That is a 300% rate of growth. So the amount of dividends that I earned last month compared to the year prior is a 300% increase. That is a substantial increase by any measurement Increasing the amount of passive income that you're earning 300% from one year to the next, that is a substantial change. So people may say, you know, $168, that's not a lot of passive income, making that much money in a month. Well, look at what it came from one year ago. It came from $42 to $168. So I look at the rate of growth. That's something that you look at with companies. If you're looking at a company and it had a rate of growth of 300% revenue earnings year over year, that type of growth, that would be remarkable. So I don't look at it really any different with my portfolio. Looking at it go year over year from numbers like $42.95 to 168 or in October from $51 to $183, these are drastic changes. 300% increases, that is quite a lot of growth. This has taken a lot of work. I've put a lot of money into this. I've kept building it up, but I can actually see this stream of income start to grow. All of this money, I can go back to my portfolio here. And the earned dividends is $1,901. All that money, $1,901 has gone back into this portfolio, been auto-invested and purchased me more shares. So now about $2,000 worth of shares in my portfolio were purchased by my portfolio. That is compounding happening right there. $2,000 of passive income being used to purchase more assets that gain you more passive income. So people that are new to this, it's easy to look at a portfolio like mine that has been around for about two years. And you look at the gains and the amount of dividends that I'm earning and the amount of market gains and you know the 40% money weighted return and you're going, gosh, I want that for myself. I wanna be able to earn this type of passive income and have it grow over time. I wanna start along this journey as well. And then you get started, you create an account, you start funding it, you put money in and let's say that you just started last week. If I would've just started last week and I deposited $68,000 in, that's quite the initial deposit, I would say, but let's say I did, I would say, hey, wife, I put a lot of money in this portfolio. You know, I wanted to start this passive income. Uh, I was excited about it. And so far we are down $545. Every day we've been losing hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Every hour the market's open, we've just been losing dollars. That's what this portfolio would be so far. That's if I minimize this, if I zoomed in to the weak view. And that's how it is with investing. So if you just started off and all you're seeing is red, this is a long-term thing. This is something you build up over years. Don't get discouraged if you're in it for a week. If this is a type of thing where one week makes you discouraged, makes you frightened, makes you start second-guessing yourself, you should not be in the stock market. It is not the right place to be if 
seeing some red numbers when you first start off is something that will cause you a lot of stress. So it's all about mentality. I choose to focus on the dividends and the passive income. Okay, now before moving on, I have to mention this. I put up a poll on my YouTube page. So this is a, a, a week ago when I did that Cybertruck, the Tesla Cybertruck episode. That was the previous one that I did. I asked if it was ugly, if it was really cool looking, or if you haven't made up your mind. Now we had 3,600 votes. That is a lot of votes there. The actual results of the poll is the Cybertruck is ugly is 36%. I haven't made up my mind, 21%. And I like the way it looks, 43%. So 20% haven't made up their mind. Uh, 43% of people like the way it looks. 36% of people think it's ugly. It seems like there's a decent amount of people that like the way that it looks. Now, to make this like a, an accurate gauge or compare it to other vehicles, I'd have to show maybe a picture of a Ford F-150, something similar in comparison, and say, what do you think of the looks of this? Maybe it would be a lot more people like the way that it looks. But but 43% of people saying that I like the way that it looks, that's a lot of people. Out of 3,600 votes, that's about 1,500 people. So a good amount of people liking the way that it looks. A lot of the comments here are saying that first they hated it, then they it kind of grew on them, the design, over a period of time some people saying that they think it's the ugliest thing that they've ever seen they can't imagine anybody buying it other people saying they think that it's awesome and they want to get one the ugliest dang truck that i've ever seen but it's cool okay so that's a a mixture review anyway the big thing about this is this poll had a lot of results a lot of people have strong opinions on this it's going to generate some buzz so how this truck actually sells will be interesting to see i've seen that the pre-order sales are like up to two hundred fifty thousand, is the last i've heard but It'll be interesting to see what happens. A lot of people have strong opinions on Tesla either way, but based off this poll, what people think of it, it's pretty mixed, pretty divisive. Okay, moving on to some questions here. You can email me at josephcarlsonshow at gmail.com. That's josephcarlsonshow at gmail.com. You can also just comment in a YouTube video. I read those as well, or message me on Twitter or Instagram. I check those as well. The first one is from Arrow Hill. This is a comment on last week's YouTube video. He says, just wondering about your thoughts on AT&T and Moffitt. This is an analyst, Craig Moffitt. He says, cuts to sell this morning. Since you and I both have this holding, wondering if you agree with Moffitt or the outlook for holding on this particular stock for the long term. I have a lot of thoughts on AT&T, so many that I'm going to be sharing them in an entire video that's going to be coming up within the next two weeks. So that will be looking at where AT&T is. The whole saga of this company, it's kind of a sad story what has happened with this company over a period of time. But I'm going to be going in this in a lot of depth. So what I'll say is just, if you want to watch that in the future, subscribe to the channel. I'll have a video on it. Maybe the next video, if not definitely the one after. So it's going to be in the next two videos I put out. Um, But for now, I'm just going to have to give that teaser. Next question is from Alex M. Alex says, curious on your thoughts on dividend ETFs such as SPHD or VYM. Would this be a good alternative for individuals who do not feel comfortable selecting individual stocks as ETFs are managed and adjusted. So Alex has brought up two of my favorite ETFs, SPHD and VYM. Both of them have a much higher yield than market average. So SPHD has above a 4% yield. It pays out monthly. It has 50 of the highest paying, lowest volatility dividend stocks in the S&P 500. VYM is a lot more diversified. So instead of having 50 companies, it has like 400 and something. But again, I don't think it has any real estate So it's a little bit lower yielding. It pays four times a year, but it's heavily diversified and they're good companies that have solid cash flow and pay above average dividends. So that's what those two funds are. 
As far as your question, Alex, saying, would that be a good alternative for individuals who do not feel comfortable selecting individual stocks? The answer to that is yes. If you have discomfort selecting individual stocks, if you are second guessing yourself, if you don't feel that you're confident in knowing how to analyze companies and investing in solid companies, if you don't feel like you're going to be able to hold on to them for the long term, if you're going to get scared out of your positions, just use ETFs. It's such an easy thing to use. You just buy into an ETF, you watch that cash flow come in month over month or quarter over quarter. And that's something that likewise, you can track on the graphs. You can see how much money you're making, you know, month over month and quarter over quarter, just the same. So I actually recommend for people just starting off investing, they should have the big majority of their money in ETFs. It's fun to do individual stocks, but unless you have a certain type of personality, I don't have any problems owning individual stocks. I just look at them as it's like I own a, a bunch of diversified rentals that just pay me income. That's how I look at my portfolio. So if you don't want to have to manage that portfolio, if you don't want to have to have all the different sectors broken out and the different companies within it, if you don't want to look at if they're going to be able to keep paying their dividends and all of that doesn't sound like any fun to you, but you like the idea of generating passive income, you can accomplish the same goal of generating passive income with ETFs. If you invest in ETFs like VYM, SPHD, VNQ, which is a real estate, Vanguard's real estate ETF. If you start putting money into those, you don't have to worry about picking stocks at all. So that's what I would recommend for people, especially people who don't feel comfortable picking individual stocks, which should probably be most people starting off. You know, it, it, you don't need to pick stocks ever if you don't want. You can always use ETFs if you want. That is an option. Um, I will say on the other end of this, people almost, uh, there's like this stigma against actually picking what you invest in and you know it's like oh you're a stock picker you actually pick what you want to buy what you want to purchase you're actually deciding what you want to purchase and people act like that's insane that you would want to have any preference in actually knowing what you purchase so you know i'm i recommend to people to pick etfs if you don't want to pick individual stocks ETFs are just, they're like a fund that keeps cycling in new stocks and they automatically rebalance themselves and all that stuff, right? They're really good. But at the same time, I don't have any kind of negative feelings or stigma towards people that actually have a preference with what they want to buy. Some people look at my portfolio and I have a bunch of different holdings. They're all stocks that I've picked out. They're all companies that I recognize and I like the way that these companies function, the products that they sell, the services that they have. And people seem that it's almost like it's stigmatized, like you're a stock picker. And they think it's crazy that I would want to have any preference in what I purchase. Uh, I don't feel like that's something crazy. When you're buying an ETF, all you're doing is buying a, a bunch of stocks all in a fund that you're buying a, a little bit of each of them. All I'm doing is just creating my own fund, weighting things how I want them weighted and, and buying a piece of each of those companies. So I don't see it as all that different. I don't think there's anything wrong with picking individual stocks. I think the online stigma about picking individual stocks is insane. I think it's crazy. I think people should absolutely be able to have a preference in the type of companies they buy. So with ETS, you don't have a preference with the type of companies you buy. You can have a sort of preference by the type of ETF that you're buying. But if you want to have a preference, if you want to say, hey, I'd rather own some Home Depot and Costco rather than Walmart, you know, if this is just a preference, you'd rather own those stores than that one. You can only really do that with individual stock picking. You can't do that in an ETF, and depending on what you want to do. 
But certainly for your question, Alex, for the people that don't feel comfortable, ETFs are an absolutely good solution for that. Just don't let other people online bully you about picking companies you want to buy. It's your money. You can choose to buy whatever you want with it. I select the companies that I want to buy. I'm totally comfortable with that. If people have a problem with me picking what I want to buy, who cares? I don't really care if they have a problem with that. Okay, Antonio says, this is an Instagram message. He says, hi, Joseph. I really enjoy your show and I think it's very informative. Now, I'm super fascinated about your dividend growth investing portfolio. Doing some research, I found an interesting data. Boeing payout ratio is 670%. How is it so high? Is that a red flag? Thank you for your education. I really appreciate Antonio. Okay, Antonio, that's a great question. That That is what Boeing's payout ratio right now is obviously is totally unsustainable. Uh, your question, is this a red flag? Yes, this is a huge red flag. If you're looking at a company that has a payout ratio even creeping up towards 100%, meaning all the income they make, all the profit that they make, they have to pay that to shareholders, that means their dividend is likely not that sustainable. I warn against investing in companies that have a 60% payout ratio. So if they're creeping up to 70% and 80%, this is REITs aren't a part of this. So they're, they're a different type of company. REITs are not in, dis, not in this discussion. But for most companies outside of REITs, anything above a 60% payout ratio is a red flag. 670% is like a huge exploding on fire red flag. So now with Boeing, you know, if you do some research, you'll find there's, there's a reason that they have a red flag right now. They're number one selling the 737 MAX. The entire fleet of them is completely grounded. They're paying out billions of dollars in fees and expenses, keeping these grounded. They're trying to keep all the airlines happy. They're paying a lot of money to retest these planes and to fix the problems with them that they had that caused those two crashes. There's all these different type of expenses going on while they're not making that much money. So as this goes on, as they're paying out all these different things and their planes are grounded and they're having these issues, their payout ratio has temporarily spiked. So is this a red flag? Absolutely. What this does is it, it's just a matter of time. So if a company has like above 100% payout ratio, meaning that they're funding their dividend through debt, that is unsustainable. And something that's unsustainable means it can't go on forever, that eventually it will have to come to an end. Above 100% payout ratio is technically unsustainable. So Boeing is in a situation where they can continue paying their dividend if they can bring that payout ratio back down below 100%. The way that they do that is by getting their 737 MAX approved by all the air officials and regulators back in the air and they start selling those planes again. Until they do that, they're just going to be racking up more expenses. They're, they're going further and further in a hole. So it's just a matter of time. Now, just some predictions here. I think if we get about halfway into 2020, six months into 2020, and they haven't made a lot of progress getting this plane back in the air you're probably going to see a dividend cut from them. So hopefully they can get the planes back in the air and approved by then safely, you know, have them actually fixed 100% of the problems. But if they do that, then they will likely keep paying the dividend. That's a priority for them. But a lot of this is out of their control. So we'll see. We'll see what happens in 2020, how much progress they make with these 737 MAX. Okay, someone on Instagram messaged me. I don't have the name for this one, but they said, what is your opinion on HYG, iShares High Dividend Bond ETF? So... High yield bonds, this is a, I don't really like them. Uh, I won't be buying high yield bond ETFs. The reason why is simple. I have 20% of my portfolio allocated to bonds. Bonds to me are there to serve a specific role in my portfolio. That is to lower the volatility of my portfolio. Meaning if the stock market goes up 3% and down 3%, the bonds might go up 1% and down 1%. They just 
smooth things out a little bit. Um, they, they do that while offering constant income, monthly income, and then they're kind of there as a safety net. So if we hit a big recession and the stock market falls, let's say 60%, the bonds that I have will likely fall around 25 to 30%. So about half as much as the stock market. The issue that I have with high yield bonds is they don't do any of that. So they trade in line with the stock market. If the stock market falls 50 or 60%, your high yield bonds might fall 50 or 60%. They might fall just as much because when the stock market is falling, it's usually because of a recession. When there's recession, these risky bonds offer a higher, higher yield are given to companies that typically go out of business. When they go out of business, they don't pay back the bondholder. So I just don't see a role with high yield bonds in my portfolio. They're just too risky. They don't offer the protection of, of higher rated bonds that I have. And the matrix says, regarding not selling in 2009, it's true things rebounded, but that's not going to be repeatable after the Fed collapses and we lose the reserve currency status. Look at Japan, where the Nikkei hasn't recovered for 30 years and it's still one third lower. The Fed will collapse in the near future. Okay, I see this example referenced a lot. So you have the U.S. stock market that has gone through a number of recessions, number of bear markets like 2007 through 2009 where it dropped about 50%, and then three or four years later, it has recovered, and since it's been on a huge bull market, right? Well, people say if we have another recession, that's okay, just dollar cost average, you know, keep investing and keep going through it. Eventually, the stock market will correct and recover. Now, the interesting thing is the Japanese stock market went through a big bust, right? It had a lead up to it just like before 2007, and then things fell apart. But instead of quickly recovering in three to four years, the stock market still in Japan, like 20 years later, has not fully recovered. And what people do is they use Japan as an example, a counterexample to the U.S. to say, hey, look, the stock market doesn't always need to recover. In Japan, it never recovered. It dropped down. People lost a lot of money. And then it never really went back to where it was, right? Oh, even over a 20-year period, it never recovered. And who's going to keep their money in the stock market for 20 years when it hasn't even recovered then? Uh that's all true, but that's leaving out a few key details. One thing is that Japan has a different type of culture, a different economy, where they had very little immigration, they had a declining population, and they had a lot of people retiring. That weighs a lot on your economy when you don't have enough workers to make up for the deficit, right? There's, a, there's more people retiring than people entering the workforce. So in the U.S., we do have some issues with population growth, but we do have a lot of immigration that helps out with that. Um, so that's one factor that's different between the two. Another one is you just look at this, the stock market and the actual valuations that Japan had for their stock market before the decline. In the run-up to the Nikkei, it was averaging 16% gains for over 40 years. That is an incredible run-up. Nothing like we've seen in our stock market. Nothing like in the S&P 500. Their valuations became so out of whack, they were sky high, way above what we have right now. The P.E. ratio was something like 90 before it crashed. The average P.E. ratio of this exchange. Ours is somewhere around 22 as, a, as about the P.E. ratio right now. It fluctuates between like 18 to 23. So comparing that to 90, we're not even close to the same valuations they had on their companies. So if you believe that this is the case, that we're going to be just like Japan was, where stocks get so overvalued that even 20 years after a crash, they're not going to return to their current valuation. If you think that the price of companies is, is that far beyond its intrinsic value, what it should be valued at, 
then I wouldn't be in stocks at all. That's not the place that I would be. So obviously I don't really believe that. I think that things are a little bit more expensive now. Uh, the, the average PE ratio of the S&P 500 is somewhere around 15 to 17. Right now we're at like 22. So it could come down a little bit. I think that we might be a little bit expensive right now, but I don't think we're anywhere close to the, to the valuations Japan had. All right, next question is an email. Hi, Joe. Thank you so much for your videos and doing your YouTube show. They are very informative, and I almost binge-watched them one after another. My wife and son want me to stop, though. In one of your older videos that you've gone through, your net worth and how you started building it since you're about 20 years old, you mentioned that you did put $165,000 as a down payment towards your $375 home on your second purchase. Would you do the same if you were buying another house or just put 20% down and invest the rest? I'm wondering with all the investment and financial knowledge that you have, what prompted you to put down more than 20% towards your payment? I know we can drastically reduce our monthly payments by doing so, but aren't we losing potential returns if that same money is invested in something like your dividend income portfolio? I'm not arguing one way or another, just wanted to get your perspective. Thank you so much and keep up the good work. Cheers. Okay, so he's right. In one of my videos, I go over my entire net worth, all my assets, everything I own outside of my portfolio. So I talk about my home and I'm in a rare situation where I own a, a really large chunk of my house, especially for being in it for two years. I own over half the value of my home currently. So my home, it was a sale price around $375,000. I put about $165,000 down on my house. Now in making that decision, a lot of people say, why would you put that much money down on your house when you could invest it? Because the home mortgage, the interest rate on it is 4.5%. 3% somewhere around there on my house, the stock market returns more than 4.3%. Typically over a 10 year period, it will return more than that. So the question that you're asking, would you do the same today if you're buying another house? Would you put just 20% down or would I put down as much money as I had? I think if you found your dream home, a place that you want to settle down and really live in for a long time, that's going to be great for your family. You're not going to be pressured to move in a couple years. Uh, I think it's good to own a lot of your house. And the reason why is getting that monthly payment down. In most people's lives, if you go to, to most people and you ask them, what is the most stressful part of your finances? It's probably going to be that mortgage payment every single month. It's relentless. It's on time. Every single month, you're paying that mortgage. And if you have a really big mortgage payment, you're paying that for the next 30 years every single month. And what I wanted to do was get in a situation where I had a home that I really liked with a very low mortgage payment, because that's the best of both worlds. I have a mortgage payment so low that most people renting, most people living in little condos or you know places that are like a third of the square feet that I'm in, they have higher monthly payments than I do. So that's a pretty stress-free life. When you have a very low mortgage payment that I could make enough money to clear this mortgage payment doing almost any job, that relieves a lot of stress because the, the single biggest financial payment that most people have is their mortgage payment. Reducing that down, it's not really a mathematical equation. It's more just a quality of life thing. I didn't want to have to stress about my mortgage payment. So I put a lot of money down in my house. I don't really regret it. I have a low mortgage payment and it makes finances really easy. And now that I do have a low mortgage payment, I can aggressively contribute to my portfolio. People say, how are you putting in two to $4,000 a month into your portfolio? It's because I pay barely over $1,000 a month for my mortgage. I pay very little monthly payments. I don't owe anything on my cars. I don't have any outstanding consumer debt. You know, there's no debt. There's just a there's just a very cheap mortgage and then whatever it costs in utilities and groceries. The rest of my money is totally freed up to go to my portfolio. So 
even though I put a lot of capital, the 165,000 into my house, it frees up all this money now that I can really aggressively put into my portfolio. Uh, Colin says, have you talked about the fire movement in any of your videos? Does any of the goals align with yours? It would be interesting to hear your opinions on it. Um, so I am familiar with the FIRE movement. It's the financial independence, retire early. It's a really popular thing online. Um, and this, I see this whole culture forming online. In fact, there's like studies and stuff coming out. The younger crowd, millennials and below, want to retire early. You know, all this type of stuff. I see it with, it's called financial minimalism. It's another term people say for like extreme budgeting, you know, living with a tiny portion of your income. Financial independence, retire early. FIRE is another group of people that have made specific goals to retire very early in life. So they all have different goals. So some of them called like fat fire where they want to retire early, but with a really fat portfolio so they can live a very full life where they're not hampered down by their expenses. Then there's another crowd that want to retire early just with enough money to live. But they might be like, hey, I want to retire really early. So I'm going to save up $700,000 and retire living off of like $30,000 a year. So to me, that doesn't seem like much of retirement, but that's what the fire movement is. People working, they set specific goals to retire early. What do I think about it? I have very mixed feelings about it. So I was going to do a video about this. I still might on the future, but I see, like I've read different stories of people in the fire movement that kind of depress me when I read about them. They're people that have given up a lot of the joys of their 20s and 30s in order to accomplish this unreachable goal that will eventually just, you know, release them from the shackles of life, right? So they have this very narrow-minded goal that their life is going to be much better when they're 35, 37 years old, and they finally hit that magical number where they can move on with life. And in the meantime, they never go out to eat with friends. They never go out to movies. They never spend money on vacations or holidays. They never travel. They don't form relationships with, with, you know, they don't marry or do anything like that because that's expensive, gets in the way of their goal. And they forfeit all of the amazing things that we have in this life that actually bring you joy. So the people that are on that route of it, that extreme of it, totally not in line with that. Not at all in line with that. That's not how I view life at all. Uh, I live a very full life. I put a lot of other priorities before finance. Um, and I see the total opposite with the fire movement. So there's that extreme of it, but I also don't want to lump everybody in the fire movement in that extreme. I realize there's some people that they have a goal to retire early, but they're also living life in the same time. And this is just a, you know, it's one of those things where you have to find balance. So I'll say with my goals, uh, where that my portfolio and all of this stuff fits in with the fire movement, I'd say, yeah, that I have a goal to retire early. I don't want to have to retire when I'm 55 or 60 or one of the traditional retirement ages. The number is totally arbitrary, right? So if you focus more on finance and you put that as a priority earlier on in life, you're going to be in a better position earlier than most people who didn't do that to retire earlier. That's a, a thing that you can expect. So I expect to be able to retire earlier than most people. So that part of the financial independence retire early part, I agree with. Um, I'm working as much as I'm willing to towards that goal, but I am not willing to sacrifice time with my kids, time with my family, that type of stuff in pursuit of this goal. So I know I could come out with three or four videos a week, plus do my full-time job, but to do that, I would have to get rid of the two to three hours a day I spend with my kids between when I get home from work and when their bedtime is. So, 
you know, there's different priorities. There's some things I'm not willing to give up in the pursuit of money. Uh, and there's some things I value a lot more than money. So that kind of comes in between it. But for an overall goal, I do at least want to get to a point where if I don't retire early, at least I don't need to rely on my active income as much, where I have such a, a stream of passive income that I could retire if I wanted to, right? That I don't have to work. That would be the optimal situation is I think that I'll always be working. I enjoy doing stuff like this and making YouTube videos, but I don't want it to be something that I have to do just to survive. So um, that's my kind of long-winded quick thoughts on it, but I could do an entire video on this. I think it's a pretty interesting subject. All right, well, I'm going to end it there. If you guys want to see future portfolio updates, see how this whole thing unfolds, hit the subscribe button if you haven't already, and I will catch up to you guys next time. We'll see you.